Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. My name is Jeffrey Zakarian, and you're listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian from iHeartRadio. In four courses, I'll be taking you along for the ride while I talk with the top talent of our time. In each conversation, I focus on four different areas of my guest's life and career. And during those four courses, I'm going to dig deep and uncover new insights and inspirations that we can all use to fuel ourselves to push forward. My guest for this episode is an Australian celebrity chef and author. He got his start in London, but now owns two restaurants in Beverly Hills. And after hosting a whole show about it, He's great at surfing. Without further delay, let's get into my conversation with Curtis Stone. Curtis, thank you so much for joining me. It's my absolute pleasure. Nice to see you. For our first course, I wanted to ask Curtis about his childhood in Melbourne, Australia, and the foods and flavors that shaped his palate. Not everyone gets to grow up eating excellent home-cooked food, but Curtis counts himself among the lucky few, and it shaped his culinary outlook for the rest of his life. It's so interesting because I try and recreate these smells for my family because they're so strong to me, those memories. And, you know, whether it was coming home from school and opening the door and the second you'd open the door, you wouldn't be thinking about what was for dinner, but you'd smell something. And for me, it was a roast chicken. My mum always would do a roast chicken and she was a gardener and she'd have different vegetables or onions roasted in the oven with a chicken. And I'd sort of, I'd smell it. I'd think, oh, she's done the roast chicken, you know. And then I'd run to the kitchen to go and look in the oven because... 
not only is that roast chicken delicious and smells wonderful, but it was also, there's something special about a roast chicken going into the middle of the table and her standing there carving it and dishing it out, you know. Then there was also, she was a great baker. So whether it was cookies in the oven or a cake, that sweet smell that sort of permeates the house, that'd normally happen on a weekend, of course. And I'd smell that and I'd be like, oh yes. And I was a greet, my mum still says, you've always been greedy. You always will be till the day you die. And she's right. I'm always the one that wants the first cookie out. I always want the boulder lick, you know, the beaters. I've, I've just always been, I've always been obsessed with how things are going to taste and, uh, and it hasn't left me yet. There is something about chicken fat and if any onions are around, that caramelization, it emits this potent odor of almost burnt sugar and wood somehow mm. marriage and it's just so delicious and I can smell it. So that's sweet chicken onion thing and and with the, with the baking that is really intoxicating so so did you sort of i baked with my mom i, mm. I went always to the sweet because of course it's good <laughs> did you go more to pies or savory you know when you're developing recipes with your mother and your paternal grandmothers and maternal grandmas did you go to the baking side or did you go to to the sort of savory side I started with the baking for sure. Yeah, my granny Maud, who I named my first restaurant after, she used to, she was from the north of England originally and then she moved, emigrated to Australia. But she used to make this sugary fudge, which I've done a bit of research on and I think it's actually a Scottish thing that might have migrated down into the north of England. But it's a thick, sugary, it has like little like graham crackers kind of broken up through it. And wow, is it good? I mean, you know, I'm sure if you ate it as an adult, you'd be like, wow, it's extremely sweet, you know, but as a as a five or six-year-old, it just tasted so unbelievable. So I started there and I think the first recipe I ever laid claim to was probably stolen out of my mum's Woman's Weekly cookbooks. And I, I took like a caramel slice base um, out of one recipe and I took a caramel slice topping out of another, which is a, the equivalent of like a lemon bar or caramel bar. I made it and I said it was mine and I, you know, I, I thought that, you know, <laughs> before I understood what plagiarism was. And, and, you know, of course I said this is my my caramel bar and everybody thought it was pretty delicious and it was because <laughs> I hadn't created it, but it was uh, what I laid my hat on back at the tender age of six or seven. You used to have it at any of the restaurants? No, you know what? We've played around with it as a little mini D and sort of just serving a little piece of it at the end of the evening. And it's a, it's a lovely story to tell, but we've never had an outlet that we could sell them in a traditional form. So it sounds to me like, okay, so you're in Australia, you're in Melbourne. So this is 70s? Yes. Uh, am I right? Okay. So what's happening in the food scene in Australia in the 70s? And what, what were they gravitating? Italian, uh, Asian? Because I always found that the, a lot of Asian Italian when I travel there, I really think they've married Italian and Asian better than any country I've been to. Yeah, they really have. There's a restaurant there called Tonka, and he's a very interesting guy. His mum is, and I might get this backwards, but I think his mum's Italian and his dad's Indian. So he cooks this Indian food, but with like an Italian attitude. And it's like, when I say it to you, you're like, what? That sounds weird. But when you eat his food, you're just like, oh my goodness, I totally understand your background through your food. And I think growing up in the in the early 80s, the, the restaurant scene was still very European. We had Italian influence, but, you know, it was still... The better restaurants were just fancy. I don't know that they were any good, but they were just fancy, you know, and that was probably laying in the French cuisine. And I think when I first started cooking as an apprentice in Australia, 
all of the executive chefs and head chefs of restaurants were either French or Austrian or German or, you know, a few Italians. But it was very much the opinion that if you wanted to be any good, Australia didn't have any good food. And you, as a chef, you would have to go to Europe to train over there. And that changed really drastically. Sort of, you know, later on in my apprenticeship and later in my 20s, Australia really did start having some wonderful food. But I think that theory paid off because all these young Aussie kids that were cooks went to Europe and learned European cuisine and then came back and started adapting what they learned to the Aussie ingredient because we have a really interesting mix of native ingredients and, and different ingredients than you find anywhere in the world. And I think the food scene in Australia now is is very vibrant. And of course, that Asian immigration really came on much stronger as the years went on. And we have a lot of Vietnamese cooks and Chinese cooks and incredible, you know, knowledge in kitchens throughout the country. And of course, that's where you learn, just like in Southern California, you have these young American kids learning all about the Mexican cuisine because there's great Mexican cooks in their kitchens, and we sort of did the same with Southeast Asian food. In our second course, I had to understand Curtis's path as one of the many Aussie kids who left home to learn how to cook in Europe. But instead of jet-setting off to a culinary hotspot like Paris or Rome, Curtis chose to study in London instead, which, he says, was all for one man. I read a book called White Heat when I was a young apprentice oh. and Marco Pierre White's he was such an inspirational chef to, to so many young cooks and I read this book and it just sounded mad, you know, sounded absolutely crazy, the way he'd push his team and um, it sounded like going to play baseball for the best baseball team in the world, you know, and I read this and I've never sort of shied away from the challenge of it all and I was like, oh, I'm in, I'm going there to do it. And, you know, naively just packed a bag and took off for Europe thinking that he'd welcome me with open arms and I didn't even reach out, I didn't write a letter. I mean, back before we were sort you of showed using, up. I just showed up and bizarrely got a job. He just let someone go that morning and he said, put an apron on, kid. And I, I was standing there in a pair of jeans and a white T-shirt and that was my first day in a three Michelin star restaurant. You know, I, I put an apron on and I, and I couldn't quite believe what was happening. But bizarrely, it was always my plan. So anyway, I spent eight years working for Marco in London. And you're right, London wasn't the home of gastronomy back then. But Marco was, you know, he was the youngest guy in the world to win three Michelin stars and a pretty interesting sort of a character. So he was cool. As chefs, you and myself, we all notice people, mm. the new ones, and we notice when they have talent and we notice they know how to move. It just stands out. It's like they have a halo around them. They're different and they're, when they're good. What did he notice about you and what did he comment on what you were doing that he could see out of the corner of his eyes that you know what you're doing or his sous chef said, like this kid, Curtis, he's okay, you know, or something like that. You know, yeah. they don't give you a compliment. But <laughs> what did he notice right away that he said, oh, I'm going to push this kid because he could be really, really something? Look, I think it was just such a... Um a high-paced environment. I told this story to, to a buddy the other day, and I don't even know if you believe me, but Marco wouldn't let us in the kitchen until 8 o'clock in the morning because he said, if you can't get your work done between 8 o'clock and when lunch starts, then you're not good enough to be here. And I couldn't. You know, I tried a couple of days to do my mise en place, my prep, and, and failed miserably. And he would throw people out of his kitchens very, very quickly. You know, that people either stayed for a lifetime or they stayed five minutes and got weeded out really early on. 
So I made friends. It was in a, a building called the Cafe Royal, which is this beautiful old, you know, heritage building. So I made friends with the janitor on, on like day two, and I said, "Would it be possible to get in a little earlier?" And he goes, "Well, the restaurant's not open, but you can certainly get down into the change rooms." So I, I started going to work at six, and I'd work for an hour and a half. I'd hide my prep. I'd get changed back into my civvies and I'd go and get a coffee and I'd walk back in with everyone else at 8 o'clock. And, you know, like, I mean, how scrappy is that? Imagine a kid doing that these That's days. That's amazing. Like- <laughs> so do you hide the prep in the locker? No, in your I, locker? I'd like hide it up the back of the fridge, but I'd, I'd put some, you know, some raw ingredients over the top of it so no one would sort of see it. And then as the time, as I got the moment, I'd sort of put it out and I'd, I'd bring it back to my, my thing. When did you stop doing this? Oh, God, I probably did it for 12 months. My first year in the kitchen, I was still sneaking in and getting uh, getting in front of... Um... That, that is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I think he probably saw that. He didn't see that because I would have got in trouble if he had seen it, but he probably in different ways saw that scrappiness, just that desire to be there, and I think that was the most important thing. It was the attitude. I, I would of... bet knowing him in a million years, he knew he just didn't say anything. You never know. Because there's probably... no way this kid got this ready. He, he found a way how to do it. or he's pay... I used to pay a guy named Cesar, I swear to God, at Le Cirque. I'd pay him $25 a week which was half of my paycheck back then, to do all my shallots and my garlic and my chopped chives. He was really good with a knife because he did prep. I said, would you please? I could never get ready. And shallots (laughs) take a lot of time. It's not possible to get shit done on time. And you know, Thomas Keller does that as well. He doesn't let you in the kitchen early. Is that right? He believes it'll make you a more focused chef. And I'm sure it did. Right. He wouldn't let us use timers either. I can remember him seeing somebody had snuck a timer in and he walked over and picked it up and just threw it in the chauffeon of water. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) he's a young cook that's, you know, just spent 20 bucks on a timer that he probably couldn't afford. You know, so he doesn't overcook something and the chef throws it in the water. So, but I mean, that was those days, right? And I thrived in that environment. And a lot of people talk about those days like they're horrible or they're negative or whatever. To be perfectly honest, I have really fond memories and I know they were hard. And I know that, you know, it was a challenge. And I understand why it's probably also not appropriate um, in today's day and age. But personally, I got a lot from it. I really enjoyed it. What was he like in the kitchen? Like, I know he's intense and he was crazy. But what was his, um, what was his trauma that made him so good? Because you got to have trauma to be that focused and and crazy. What did you see in him that you were like, wow? He was very eccentric and he still is. But he had the ability to do what most people couldn't, and that was just push himself to the point where, you know, and, and I'm sure that trauma comes from, if you spoke to him, he'd probably say, you know, his childhood had nothing to do with it, but I think it probably did, you know, and and he had that ability. So because he was doing it, everyone else just wanted to try and keep up. You know, it's interesting, I work out in a boxing gym, and when there's a great boxer in that gym, everybody else just trains that a little bit harder. You know, everybody else wants to just sort of not be the one that's standing around, skipping around. So it's an interesting thing, and I think Marco, he was very fair. You know, he has a big reputation for being crazy, and he was, you know, like because he was just so passionate. And, you know, one 1% less than perfect was terrible and thrown across the room, but there's something I love about that. I still do, you know. I'm nowhere near the artist he was, but I still take my food extremely seriously, and, and I really admire people that have that just focus. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! 
me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. For our third course, Curtis and I talked about his transition into television, which is something he jumped into way earlier than most chefs. Turns out his foray into TV completely changed his career trajectory in new and exciting ways, just as it was changing our entire industry. So you have eight years with that gentleman. That, that's, a, that's a long time with one chef. It really is. It's, it's enough to really, I would say, cement all the things you need to learn about food and cooking your food that there could be coming from someone so, so amazing. I knew in your 20s, I believe, you were into this TV. How did this all happen? How did like the show Surfing the Menu happen? Yeah, well, I was running one of Marco's restaurants. I sort of started as the most junior person in his kitchen and ended up, and that was kind of Marco, right? Like people would move along, which created opportunities quickly because he, if he had a bad service, two or three might go and you'd be like, oh, okay, I just became a chef to party. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he, he had trust in people that he'd been with for a long time. So I was running a restaurant for him when I was 25. I was the head chef of um, Quo Vadis in, in London. 
so, you know, I was there for a couple of years and we were producing some pretty delicious food and, and somebody published a book called London's Finest Chefs um, and it was maybe 20 different chefs and some of their recipes and they put me in that book, which I was, you know, I was looking around at the other chefs thinking, oh my goodness, some of these guys are, you know, my heroes. And they asked us all to come to a book signing and do a TV appearance, a morning show appearance, and I did that. And then I got a phone call from the BBC the next day and said, we'd like you to meet this lady from Australia who's put together a show idea and we're going to co-commission it with the ABC, which is the equivalent of the BBC but back home. And um, the show was surfing the menu. So, you know, it just it happened totally accidentally, to be honest with you. You know, I was just busy working away in my restaurant. That was my career and that was all I was focused on. And, I mean, there might have been TV chefs around, but I can't remember them, you know. And the show surfing the menu was based on the idea of two Aussies who would, were living abroad, coming back to Australia and rediscovering Australian food while on a surf trip. So, I mean, when you get pitched that at the age of 26, you're like, ah, uh, you're going to pay me to surf and cook my way around Australia? Sure. When's the plane leave? Um, and so that was it. It's sort of just, you know how it goes. If, if your first show works, then you do another season and then another season, then they want you to do another show. And before you know it, you're writing a cookbook. And, you know, one thing sort of just led to another and it kept snowballing. And, and here I am in, in Brentwood, California. <laughs> it, it is stunning. But, you know, you got there. I mean, I tell people like, I'm like, it took 30 years <laughs> right. before I got on TV. And those 30 years before, I wasn't like sending out scripts. You know, I was like working and it, it was an accident. But those accidents are fantastic. But also, I always think of like Galloping Gourmet, Graham Kerr, one of my idols. I used to watch him. I think it's remarkable how television has really changed the paradigm for everybody. When I speak to kids and parents, it's the children that are teaching the parents how to cook now because of the internet and the experiences of the kids are really into it. The parents never cooked. They were too busy working because of the generational thing. Right. And now the paradigms change. So these kids with the internet click on how to cook a steak. They go on this 4,000 videos, how to cook a steak. If you're 50-50 and you get it wrong, it's still going to be pretty good. You're absolutely you know, right. We didn't have yeah. that. We didn't have that. We had to actually cook right. 10,000 steaks. I remember back when I started, chefs were very protective around their recipes. I mean, now it's cool to publish them and put them on the internet and share them with everyone. I remember having to like peek in my, I worked in the pastry section for a while and Thierry was this like incredible pastry chef and, and I just needed the recipe, he'd never give it to me. He'd always leave ingredients out or he'd do the last step and I was like, oh my God, it'd be so much easier if I had the recipe. And I can remember peeking in his recipe book, but with the fear that if he walks back in here, I'm dead, you know, and, and back before I had a phone that could take a photograph where you could just snap a photo of it, <laughs> you're like scribing it out as quick as you could. You know, you remember those days where it was- I Recipes weren't just free for everyone and, and now they are and the information's all there and it's a, it's a wonderful time for these kids to be growing up and cooking because they really have so much information. I mean, it's what you do with that information, of course, but the information's certainly there, so that's a great thing. So you're, you're having a blast surfing. You actually surf though, Russ. You're a surfer? Well, I pretended I was a bit, I'm not going to lie. I told them, they said, do you surf? And I said, absolutely. I said, come on, all Aussies surf. But deep down, I was like, <laughs> you know, I do a pretty good impersonation of a man holding onto a plank of wood drowning. But I could surf, but not well, you know, certainly not well enough to host a show called Surfing the Menu. But the guy that I was paired up with, Ben O'Donoghue, and we'd never met. He was also an Aussie. Ben was... uh 
this, you know, super talented guy, very Italian and rustic cooking, where mine was a bit more, you know, French and gastronomic, I guess. But he was just a, a master with a surfboard. So he sort of taught me how to surf along the journey. And, and my joke is that I taught him how to clean up after himself in the kitchen. But I don't think I succeeded at that because he's, he's one of those beautiful, messy cooks where he destroys the kitchen, but everything tastes unbelievable. How many seasons of Surfing the Manager did you do? And when did you get the call to come to the United States? We did three seasons and it was one of those kind of shows where it was a travelogue and so many people would watch it overseas. So they sold it to, you know, a variety of different territories. And, and then that sort of opened some doors, I guess, or, or networks sort of seeing it from abroad. And I got a phone call about a show called Take Home Chef, which I thought was a ludicrous idea, you know, that, that I was back in Australia actually filming Surfing the Menu at the time. And I got a call from a guy saying, here's the concept of the show. We want you to go into a grocery store. This is, you know, nearly 20 years ago when I, I looked a lot cuter than this, Jeffrey. But he said, we want you to go into a grocery <laughs> store. We want you to approach a really cute young lady. And we want you to ask her if she would welcome you into her home to cook her dinner. And I'm like, okay. And then when you get back <laughs> and you spend the day Doesn't cooking. Doesn't matter if she's married or not or right. she has a boyfriend. When you get back and you spend the day cooking with her and her husband comes home, we'll all shout surprise and that will be the, the joke, you know, and then you'll obviously serve them dinner. And then and he like, takes out a shotgun right. and he aims it at you. I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing here? Like very, very ridiculous. But I was having my 30th birthday in Las Vegas. I'd never been to America before, but I had half of my mates, of course, were British at that time because I was living in England and half of them were still Aussie. So I said, let's meet in the middle and we'll do a party in Vegas. And we'd planned it, but I hadn't booked my travel. And when this guy rang me about this show, I thought to myself, you know what, I could get him to fly me over and I'm sure they'll fly me business class. That's so, great. So I came over for a free flight and that was the thing that changed my life. <laughs> You are so you're bribing the janitor doing mise en place. You're getting people to fly you over. You're very wily. Scrappy, very mate. wily. Scrappy, yeah. Scrappy and wily. I love it. So you said yes. Where was it filmed? So this is 2000, right? That's right. Yeah, we shot in Los Angeles and we shot it in Pasadena in a Galson. Pasadena. Yep. And uh, we shot it. And then I went to Vegas. I met my buddies. We had a great time. And I went back to London. And then I got this, this, you know, email through saying that they picked up 60 episodes. And in my wildest dreams, I thought if they did pick it up, maybe we'd do 10 or 15, you know, but they picked up 60 right off the bat. That's unheard I, of. They don't do that anymore. Oh, right. There's no more 60 episode pickups. <laughs> and I looked at it and I was like trying to figure out the dates. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be there for six months. So you know, I had a girlfriend, I had an apartment, I had a life in London, I had a job, and suddenly I had to like change all that because I was getting on a plane to Los Angeles. And yeah, it was uh, it was a bit a, a real life changer, but um, what a fabulous opportunity! So you canceled the apartment and you canceled your job. Did you cancel the girlfriend too? Well, we kept it going for a while, but I think when she realized, and then they picked up season two, which was another sixty. Yeah, things things uh, things fell away. The long distance relationship didn't work out. It didn't. So you're, this is 2002. When did you meet your wife? I should know that straight off the top of my head, shouldn't I? I wasn't here for very long. We've got a 10-year-old. So we've been together for probably 12 years. So yeah, I was probably only here for a couple of years when we met. Wow. So that decided right there. That's it. I'm, I'm in. I'm in Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, how's LA treating you? Look, LA's been a, a funny, funny place the last couple of years. I've had a 
bizarre relationship with Los Angeles because I sort of, I thought it was a bit of a weird city when I first got here and I didn't have that like instant love affair with it, but I did with my wife and that's what sort of kept me here. And it's a bit of a roller coaster of a city, you know, you love it, you hate it, you find it challenging. But of course now it's home, I've been here nearly 15 years and the sun's always shining and there's some really nice parts to it. And there's probably some things that you miss a little bit after living in big cities in different parts of the world when you come to LA because it's not the cultural mecca that some other cities are. You're up in New York and that's uh, it's a very different type of city. But it's fun. I, I like living here. So did you want to do a restaurant? Because it really, you're coming about this from a TV side. It's not like, it's not like you came here to open a restaurant. So how did, how did you go from this world of 60 episodes once a week to like, you're now working very deeply like we are in a same company called HSN. Yep. How did that happen? And then the, you you spawned a restaurant, so it's sort of backwards, right? Yeah, most it, people have the restaurants, and then they like then they start doing TV. It really was, and I think there's parts of that that were really challenging, and parts of it that were fabulous as well. Because you know when I was working in television, and and I came up with the idea for my product line back when I was working in people's homes, and I thought to myself, I'd only ever worked in professional kitchens and cooked that way, and now I'm cooking in people's homes, and I thought. No wonder they all say they can't cook. Their, their equipment's terrible. It's, you know, they have these little cutting boards and blunt knives and crap cookware and no wonder it doesn't work. You know, one, no wonder people find it such a chore. And, and that sort of got me thinking, you know, what if we could create products that helped you along your journey when you cook? And, and so I went on that journey of doing products and television and books. And, and then we had um, our first son, Hudson. And I can remember being in a park with him and I was sitting there thinking about my dad and thinking about all the things I thought about him as a man and as a, a role model and what his work ethic was like. And and I was looking at my son while I was having these thoughts because he was probably only 18 months or whatever. And, and then I thought, I wonder what this kid's going to think of me. You know, one day I'll be the dad. And it was there in that park that I thought to myself, he might just think I got lucky. You know, like he might just think that I yeah. had a chance meeting or whatever and because I was never precious about the cooking side of it. I knew I could cook. Like you said, I worked for eight years with one of the best chefs in the world and I wasn't – I didn't have anything to prove to anyone because I knew I could cook but I also didn't have a restaurant, you know, and I thought – I don't know, there was something in me that just sort of wanted to create a legacy for my kids that they saw their dad get up and go to work and deal with hardship and battle through things. And then, of course, I wanted to sort of have that creative outlet again and, and be able to cook because cooking for someone in a home or, or whatever, it's just a very different muscle, you know, and I like to exercise mm. both those muscles because when you do get into a restaurant with all the technology, um, all the incredible equipment and the best quality ingredients and all the rest of it, hopefully you can create something really magical, you know. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. For our fourth and final course, I got to ask Curtis about his two restaurants, Gwen and Maud which are both named after his grandmothers. We talked about the pleasures and pain points of running your own kitchens and what it means to deliver high-quality hospitality for your guests. I mean, you have two incredible restaurants, uh, Gwen and Maud. Are they back open and everything's well if you slid open and gotten things correct again? Yeah, I feel like we were one of those um, teams that really just tried to smuggle and juggle through the pandemic. You know, we did pop-ups, we changed concepts, we did takeout that we'd never done before, and we tried to stay really active because, you know, restaurants to me are really fragile little ecosystems, and you've got to try and keep that team, you've got to protect it. So, yeah, we fought to sort of keep them all together. I feel like we went to hell and back through the pandemic. Um, <laughs> but we're back open. Gwen's um, busier than it's ever been. You know, we're full every night, which is, uh, you know, in restaurant world, you sort of look up and, and, and say a little prayer when it feels like that. And Maud, we're just sort of putting the final pieces together and we'll be open early next year. So there's nothing like the feeling of walking into a restaurant when there's a fully blown service in play. And I don't know, I've, I've always lived for it. I, I love it. Yeah. And you say, that's me. This is my, you know, you look around like this, I'm responsible for this. The love affair of opening restaurants, it's almost psychotic. It's almost like there's, it there's is. a drug. Yeah. It's, it's not possible to be vaccinated against the restaurant business. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's the it's ultimate. so true. It's like you, you watch people do these extreme sports, Jeffrey, like marathons or triathlons or, you know, it's, it, they're, they're really intense things. And you think, why would anyone do that when you could go to an air conditioned gym and get the same experience there? And, uh, you know, we could do other businesses as well. It's not like people that run restaurants don't have the smarts to, to be in other businesses, but there's something that drags you in. And I'm not exactly sure what it is, that nurturing feeling that you get when you're looking at your guests. But yeah, there is something intangible that, that is really lovely about them. 
what you did with Martin. Uh, I've only been there once, and everything in that restaurant, you just feel it. That it's so authentic and it's so beautiful, and it's such a thoughtful way to serve people. And I love that it's a menu, but it's not like so long that you have to like take off a week to go <laughs> both in the financial side of it and like who has four hours anymore to sit and just do that it's just not a re- it's not a return to normal is not doing that right. we might have a bit more free time because we want to work remotely but i think there's a certain time in dining that i find the the, the, the magic number it's probably 90 minutes where you can really appreciate that the food it's yummy it has a fun element to it and the chef can create something that is memorable. And you'll come back again. Mm-hmm. You don't go back for three-hour experiences once a week. It becomes something that is such a, like a church versus a restaurant. And you did not open a church, which was very easy to do when it's small like Maud is. You know, it's right. like, so what were you thinking when you opened it? Well, look, I think that the, the really interesting thing that happened was I went from being a cook. And as you know, young cooks just, first of all, we work every Friday and Saturday night. And we don't have the money to be able to go and eat in these extravagant restaurants. Well, because I was over here doing television, I wasn't working on weekends and I did have a bit more cash than, than most young cooks have. So I was able to go and, and dine in great restaurants. And, and I think that really changed it for me because I see so many chefs cooking from a chef's perspective as opposed to from a diner's perspective. And I was lucky enough that I could kind of do both. And I... What I said from the start was I want it to be fine dining. I really do. I want it to be detailed and I want it to be wonderful. But I don't want all the nonsense that comes with that. I want it fine dining without the fluff is what we always say at Maud because we want it to be comfortable and we want it to be even casual in a way but still refined and elegant and beautiful and served on a beautiful plate and, and really some detail put into the presentation. My, my favourite ever line from one of our staff, he, he was our, our sommelier and he walked over and he dropped the plate and he said, for your next course, there's more food. And then he walked away. <laughs> and, you know, that big presentation of, oh, chef's done this to the duck and the this and the that. And it's like, it's just food. It's just food. It's put it down, I know, let him eat I it. I, I, thank you. You know, and, uh, the problem is they ask the dreaded question at the table when you're Forks in your mouth. How is everything going so far? And you feel like saying, would you just f- off? I'm trying to eat. Can you give us some time alone? And it's kind of what I think. It's like, why do you keep interrupting people and asking for compliments? I totally agree. Yeah. Stop it. And when my managers, I have to school them and never, ever ask anyone how everything is. I agree. If they want to tell you something, they will, they will, it's okay to just excuse me. If they call you over, that's okay. Yeah. It's Okay. Believe me, if you ask them how everything is, they're going to lie to you. They want you gone. They want you away. They want to continue the conversation you just interrupted. And then they're going to go home and they're going to give you a rating. rating. And then you're going to, why, what happened? Everybody said it was great. It's because they're not telling you the truth. You're so right. You know, I, I don't do that lap of honor. You know, you oh, see chefs going Thank from table to that. table. And I say to myself, and you have guests that want to see you in your restaurant, right? And I love that. But to me, it's so much more meaningful if I either walk out of the kitchen and drop some food on their table or if they see me behind the stove, that's what you chef should be doing. And and I've had people come into my business, even guests say, you didn't even come out to the table or chef, why don't you go to each table and, and check in with each each table? And I'm like, 
Because I want them to have a wonderful time and I don't want exactly. to go over there and insist on a compliment because that's exactly what they'll give you. You know, I, I want it to be genuine and if they want me to come over, I'm, of course, super gracious to do it and would love to love to go over. But it's funny, we've got a very similar idea there. And then there's some restaurants, they just every single course, every person twice. I mean, it's like you just want to... And sometimes I tell the maitre d', I'm like, I'm having dinner here and I love it here, but please don't interrupt us. Service doesn't mean you interrupt people. No, 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 yep. no. It means if the glass is empty, take it away quietly, pour another one. If there's something wrong, if they're not eating the food, you're allowed to go over and say, may I get you something else quietly to them. But if the plate's clear, you don't ask them how it was. Why would you do that? Or ask them if they're done. It's clearly done. There's nothing there. Come and pick it up. Don't ask someone if they're done. You're going to make them feel like they're a glutton. It's, it's all these things that like, it's not fun to eat in restaurants anymore because just people are like, there's a corporate woke mentality of how you're supposed to approach a table. Have you dined with us before? Is there any allergies at the table? Believe me, if there are allergies at the table, they would have told you when they made the reservation online. Yeah. Right? Hi, my name's Barry. I'm going to be your server. I feel like saying, oh, you are? I thought you were going to do a performance for us. Of course exactly. you're the server. No, no. It's so <laughs> amazing. And I, I'm so glad that you, we have that frame of reference. And it doesn't mean you don't neglect the customer. When I did this to my restaurants... My waiters, their chips went up 20% and they yes. thanked me. They're like, oh my God, we don't have to go interrupt people. We don't like to do it. Right. We don't like to interrupt it. They're having a conversation and how are we doing so far? <laughs> right. I've been asked that question, by the way, before I've cut into my steak. You know, and I, yes. I look yes. down at my no, food no. and I'm like, it's great. You know, like, I know. are you joking? You'd, it's such an insincere question and that's what hospitality is. It needs to be sincere and you need to genuinely want to create a wonderful time. And by the way, sometimes that's different table to table. You've got to read the play a little bit. If it, if your customers come in and, and your guests say, look, oh, we're from out of town and we just went to the theatre and they oh, want they you want to chat. ask, that's how fine. was Hamilton? They want to know. Uh, that, that's right. The that's table right though. next to them, they don't want any conversation. You've got to be able to read that and you've got to be able to pass that communication on through the back, through the front of the house so that you all know. You know, you, you don't want to be asked three times if you're drinking sparkling or still. That's, that's our job <laughs> to figure out which, which type of water you want and we'll make sure oh. that you get it all night, you know. Good. Well, I, I'm going to make a reservation as soon as I can get out. We there. sound like two crotchety old men. You know that. That's no, we're not. No, <laughs> we're, we're not. You know, we're not. And I think that the problem is we're raising service to be unservice-like and unhospitable. It's not hospitable to interrupt someone. You're right. It's just not. I mean, so learn to be discreet. You just want to have dinner and be really taken care of. You're so right. So we both work in a very interesting industry. Um, I'd like to close on this. Um, QVC, HSN. It's really fascinating. People say, well, why do you want to be on that? Why do you want to sell online? Why do you want, I'm like, and I get asked that question. I understand because when I got asked, I didn't really understand it. But if our mission as cooks is to reach a number of people and make things better for them, there's no better metier or mouthpiece than this incredible online channels, which Barry Dilla created in 1984, it's just amazing the reach of people and the numbers, the numerics of what it is. I mean, it makes the viewership of our TV shows look small comparatively. So for me, it's sort of this remarkable way of, like I don't have to teach or do anything that I don't believe in, and so I'm good with it. And I find it like a re very refreshing. I don't find it at all. People say, well, you sell out and all that stuff. So how, how do you look at it? Because I, I find it like, remarkable how interesting it is. 
You know, I think if you really believe in your product, and that's the first step, right? And, and whether your product's a plate of food or whether your product's a burrito you sell from a food truck or whether it's a pot or a pan or a knife or a cutting board, if you believe in that product, and, you know, the way we do it certainly is to try and develop product that changes things for you in the kitchen. It either brings you confidence. The mission of our business is to bring confidence to the kitchen and happiness to the dinner table because those two things to me are very connected. And... Once you can do that, whether it's through a product or an inspiration or a way of using a product, people really are grateful for that. And, you know, I think if you we started this conversation around why do we do what we do, because in restaurants it's so difficult. And I think the true answer to it is because you want to help someone. You want to help them have a nice time. You want to create something really special for them. And it can be a total stranger, which is the interesting thing about chefs. I think they are very nurturing by nature and they are very, they're pleasers. You know, we want to please people. And I think when it comes to product, I've had such beautiful comments from people I've bumped into at the farmer's market that say, oh, mate, we never used to cook fish. In my house, we never cooked fish and we bought you pans and we saw you cook salmon on it and it doesn't stick and now we do it every Friday night and you think, oh my God, here's a family that I've never met, I've no contact with, but somehow I've had just a tiny bit of influence in their life. They're doing something that's better for them, that tastes more delicious, that creates a nice conversation around their table and I think that that is really special and you combine that power with online shopping and TV retail and being able to speak directly to your customers, you know, and tell them exactly, like, you should do it exactly like this, as opposed to a traditional retail model where you have to create a box and stick it on a shelf and hope someone gets it. You know, that's very challenging. But our model's exciting, mate. I absolutely love it. Yeah, and I think that people don't, they'll ask me, is it really live or are you just taping? I'm like, no, no, it's live. That's the most exciting part of it for me because the tape stuff, I really don't like reading teleprompters and all that stuff. I think live is the way to go. And like you said, we are open source. We sell instantly to people and we inform people instantly so they can make a decision instantly. And that has repercussions. I mean, it's you can go on a QVC or HSN and buy a lot of stuff you don't need, but there's a lot of stuff there that is really very helpful. And I know about you, but the first time I did it, it was I was a complete mess because I'd done chop for 12 years. I'd done Iron Chef. I'm like, yeah, I know. I, I got this. I got this. It was nothing. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, this is, I got dizzy trying to like follow the guy in the ear, follow this camera, that camera. I was like, isn't it, describe to me the first time you did it and what happened. It was really challenging because you're so used to it being all about the food, you know, and you're, you, you want the cameraman to see the food and you want to make the food really beautiful and make sure it tastes really great. But of course, your purpose of being on, for me, HSN and for you, QVC, the purpose of it is to show them the product. So you want them to see the product and you're like, yeah, the food's not that important. Yes, the process is important and understanding that if you cook steaks in this pan, it's not going to stick or if you um, use this cutting board, this is going to happen. But and so it makes you... Well, the crazy thing is your brain is super active, right? And you're thinking so many things, but you've got to keep talking. And that's yeah. the hard part, you know. <laughs> that, that's the challenging bit. Unfortunately, I think that we're so good at what we do is that the host will then let you let you go. And then and it's then it's your show. They're like, oh, right. I got a break here. You know, exactly. With some people, they're not very good. They have to keep doing it. I got a break. Curtis knows what he's doing. Let him just sell. He's great. And they're looking <laughs> at cards for the next sale. And they don't realize that you're like, it's your show. Yeah. 
I find that happens. And maybe that's a good thing that we're getting good enough so that people let us talk. But uh, it's so true. It's a very, very difficult skill that I think I'm getting better at. But I'll tell you, it's, it's a wild ride. But I just want to thank you for sharing the time. And you have an incredible story. Uh, and you're a great guy and a great gentleman. Thank you so much. Jeffrey, thank you so much for having me, mate. It was really nice spending some time with you. Thanks very much for listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian, a production of iHeartRadio and Corner Table Entertainment. Four Courses is created by Jeffrey Zakarian, Margaret Zakarian, Jared Keller, and Tara Halper. Our executive producer is Christopher Haziotis. Four Courses is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dresler. Our research is conducted by Jesslyn Shields. Our talent booking is by Pamela Bauer at Dogtown Talent. This episode was edited and written by Priya Mahadevan and mixed by Joe Tisdall. Special thanks to Katie Fellman for help as recording engineer. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.